Welcome, welcome my friends to another episode of Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. It's a new year. It's a crazy time as fascists are trying to take over our country. Only really, like knocking down the doors of Congress. Uh, you know what? At first I was going to be all, oh, I just can't talk about it. I'm too upset. You know what? We need to do what we need to do to stop these freaking people. This country is not for fascists. I'm sorry. They can't have it. Don't let them have it. Be smart. Do what you got to do to protect yourself. Do not let them win. I urge you to read a great book called On Tyranny. Uh, I know Rachel Maddow talked about it. What does this have to do with your usual show, Eric? I don't care. It's important. Timothy Snyder, he's a professor at Yale. Fantastic guy. Great book. It's a how-to in terms of fighting tyranny. And doesn't mean you send millions of dollars somewhere or shoot anybody. It's not that, okay? It's a great book. Read it. You know who's great? Jem Blackthorne, who's the guest today. She's a brilliant writer and editor. She's got a podcast. She talks about spirituality in a way that a lot of people don't, but she's honest and engaging um, and just lovely, just like Abe's Muffins. They're lovely. They're allergen-free. You should try them, enjoy them, and tell me what you think at isthatreallylegal.com about the show, about Jem, about Abe's Muffins. Uh, they have brownies, by the way, that are fantastic. I am confident that those brownies are anti-fascist. There, I said it. Enjoy this podcast. Um, enjoy your life. Wear a mask and be active in your government. Resist fascists and enjoy Gem Jim Blackthorne, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. Thank you for being here. Of course, thank you for having me. So, as I say in the intro, uh, you're a writer and a podcaster, um, and also a Floridian. These are oh. all very strange things. <laughs> I think my, my biggest sin is the Floridian part, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, it's not your well, I think it's not your fault. Is it your fault? Did you choose Florida or was Florida thrust upon you? Uh, well, I was born here, but I haven't left. So I feel like I, when you're almost 30 and haven't left, at some point it is your choice to stay. Uh, so. <laughs> well, but there's a lot of Florida. Like having been to Florida a whole lot of times and not just one particular place, I understand that Florida, you know, there's that saying about Florida, the the more south you go, the more north you go, and the more north you go, the more south you go. That's absolutely accurate in my experience. You're yeah, so on the Gulf Coast, right? Technically, yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm in Tampa, but I was raised in Miami. So the whole thing about that being a whole different country is so true because I grew up in a community that spoke mainly Spanish. Um, and I didn't realize, so I'm Nicaraguan, like, my family's Nicaraguan. I was born here, but right. I grew up in Little Havana. So my Spanish can sometimes have a Cuban accent. Um, That's fine by me. I, I <laughs> love Cuban food and Cuban music was the first real Latinx or Latin whatever music that I really got into for reasons that 
we can talk about, but like Celia Cruz and Tito Puente are probably the two biggest, you know, Spanish music influences for my life. I don't, you love, do you, you said, I love her for Celia Cruz. So do you love Celia Cruz? I do. So I'm actually taking voice lessons for the first time ever because I've never been a good singer. Um, Fantastic. And that's, she's like my goal as far as like how I, I would, I wish I could sing. Mm. Um, so yes, I, I love her music um, and her story. They actually made this, um, you know, Hispanics, we love our soap operas. So they made this sort of like docu, docu-series soap opera-esque thing based on her life a couple of years ago. Um, Who's the they, do you know? Like, was it in Spanish? Was it in English? Oh yeah, it was in Spanish. I think it was, it was one of the big two. So either Univision or Telemundo, like one of those two big right. um, channels and one of the production companies um, did this so it was her 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 life story in novella form and um it was interesting though because there's a lot of things i didn't know about her well you know that um i i don't know if i'd say i speak spanish but i certainly close enough i've been to madrid and i was able to make my way with a um spanish only tour guide for a while um and uh studying a lot in Brooklyn. And then of course the pandemic happened. We did some Zoom studying, but I really like to, I'm a big fan of uh, a lot of Spanish language films. And of course, as we just said, Spanish language music. Telenovelas, not so much there. I have to be in the right mood. Um, uh, Let's be honest, the telenovelas here that you can see in New York are usually way over the top. The bad guy has an eye patch and a mustache. There is a crucifix in every room. There is a small diminutive maid who's got a secret past who knows everything but can't say. It's actually, as I tell you about it like this, it's actually fun. I feel like I'd like to write one. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, Ah, well, before we get so far afield, um, talking about, you know, Miami and Tampa, those are two of the more sophisticated areas of Florida. <laughs> I mean, and people yeah. write to me, if people want to write, they can go to isthatreallylegal.com and there's places you can write to me. But I've been to Pensacola, I've been to Jacksonville, um, and I've also been to Boca uh these are all their own worlds you know in pensacola or close to the panhandle in florida you're right up against alabama and literally i have trouble understanding what people say because they have this very strange accent that's not really alabama it's kind of louisiana meets i got lost on the way to florida and i just ended up here so i'm speaking this prehistoric language that may sound like English, but I have no idea. Have you had that experience? Have you been to Pensacola or yeah, I, or the Panhandle at all? I actually haven't been that far north. Um, mostly, let's be honest, I'm kind of afraid to go. <laughs> <laughs> but just my, because you're a woman, uh, more because I'm Latina, I don't know. Okay, and I'm, yeah, I'm very I obviously, I'm very obviously Latina when you look at me. Um, For so, people who don't who don't see her, because we're not gonna, you have. Um, darker skin, and I don't know how to call these features without sounding like a racist, but yes. I'll I would allow say, it, go ahead. <laughs> you, look, you look Latina to me. 
Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm fairly light skinned on the because we do have an issue in the Hispanic community, Latinx community with colorism. Where oh, every community with yeah. with people who so, are quote unquote of color. You you know, I have friends from India who you should be lighter skinned, but not so light that you're white. Like there's a there's a appropriate amount of color, and of course, African Americans have a whole thing about how black or not black you are. And yeah. if you have white people in your background and it's a whole thing. Oh. And as a white yeah. Jew from Long Island, I feel like I've observed this, but I don't have a dog in that fight, but I can just say from a distance that I can see it. And I've, I've heard about it anyway. Yeah. So in my community, um, I do, um, I guess have some sort of um, privilege because of that, because I am fairly, fairly light skinned within my community. But then when I leave my community, so like in Miami, I'm considered a white girl because I'm so light skinned, which is funny. <laughs> it is. I did but laugh then, But once I left Miami for the first time and moved, like that shifted quickly. And I was like, oh, people don't see me. People see me a different way here. I'm so, so I, white. Would I just be like a ghost in Miami? <laughs> or would they go, well, you don't count because you're like a Jew and that's a whole other bargain. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> now I'm scared to answer that. No, but even like, in Miami, we kind of have our own neighborhoods. So mm -hmm. for the most part, uh, we would probably assume you're a tourist or that you live out in a certain part of Miami. So most likely Miami Beach. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I have relatives who... Uh, Miami Beach, which is known as a very Jewish place, right? Yes. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got yeah. it. Well, <laughs> let me say, I know that you, uh, well, let me back up and say, or ask, when did you say, I love writing, I love reading, this is my thing, I ultimately want to be a writer? Did you ever say that to yourself? I did when I was eight years old. That's an interesting time. And what was it? Who was it that you read or what kind of experience brought you to that place? Um, well, my parents always made sure I had books around. But what happened is when I was eight years old, I didn't have a computer yet. Um, I'm a 91 baby, so I was born in 91. So if you, you want to fit say, that, <laughs> if I, you want to fit I, that into like well, it's the timeline. Funny. <laughs> it's funny to me. I didn't have a computer at eight. It's like, yeah, me either. And then it's like, well... <laughs> I'm a 61 baby. So in, you know, when I was a computers filled a building and you used cards uh, and the first quote unquote personal computer I had, I got when I was in law school and it had a dot matrix printer for people who don't know what a dot matrix printer is first, screw you. And second of all, Google it. I'm not here to teach you ancient technology. Just trust me. It was cool, it made a lot of noise, and the world, for just one second, see, I, oh, this is where I turn into the old guy talking to the young person. But I lived through, like, when I was born, we had just, or it was right before, we had put a man into orbit around the Earth. That was our technology moment there. I went to college with a portable typewriter. I left law, law school with a portable computer. That all happened within 25 to 30 years. Mm 
I had my own personal secretary when I started out. Now I have an iPhone and a Mac Air. Apple, help a guy out, sponsor a show. Um, and the world, I, I haven't had a secretary for literally decades, nor have I needed one. And, you know, my car has a computer in it. Everybody's car has a computer in it. So it's funny to me that you, you know, I have to take a look at what worlds you grew up in. So, you know, a 91 baby, as you say, which is hysterical to me on so many yeah. levels, um, <laughs> you just assume that some people had computers. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so, uh, okay, so, <laughs> so you didn't have a computer growing up, you I poor didn't. Hispanic child in Miami. Yeah, <laughs> but my aunt did. So whenever we go visit her, I would just get on like, um, Microsoft Word and start typing. And I was eight. So like my, I don't know how my vocabulary was that good, but okay. Um, and I was just start writing a story and apparently I kept writing the same story over and over. And I am a bit on the wooey spiritual side. So I am starting to think that maybe this was some sort of past life thing that I was writing about. Mm -hmm. Regardless, to me, it was just a story um, about a girl who was adopted by her grandparents. Um, and I was just making it into like, According to my parents, it was like a novel. Like I had about like 30 pages, 50 pages going. Wow. Um, and I was eight. So since then I was wanting to be a writer, but it was kind of drilled into me that I couldn't make a living from writing. <laughs> yeah, um. <laughs> that, that is drilled into every child by every parent who, when the kid wants to go into the arts, mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to be a rock star. Again, in the 60s, I grew up with a lot of rock and roll stuff that the Beatles, the Monkees, mm -hmm. and um, your parents are terrified you're going to starve. I don't know why they're terrified, because people like you and me, we're not willing to starve. We'll find a way. We'll get a house. We'll get roommates. We will eat. Uh, but they're terrified. It's mm -hmm. just part of being a parent. But they might not know that when you're a child. They, they hope you'll be that person, but they can't <laughs> know for sure until <laughs> right. you are. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so you got that message got it loud and clear so i always wanted to be two things like something and then a writer and that other thing kept changing my whole life so at one point i wanted to be an astronaut i wanted to be a nurse i wanted to um once i got into college i changed my major five times so i was on the pharmacy track then i was in the um cell biology track i was going to be a genetist so i was really deep into science mm. until i realized i couldn't um I couldn't do math, so it was time to change that. <laughs> yeah, math is, uh, that's a whole other world. Um, so during this whole time while you were in school, you, were you living a parallel life of being a writer? Yes, so I was, I started writing poetry in middle school and I won this like poetry contest with WLRN, which is like our NPR um, partner mm -hmm. down there in Miami. Um, and that's when I was 12 and, um, I kept writing a novel that I never published, but the interesting thing is that I was obsessed with being published as a teenager. I don't know mm -hmm. why, but I learned everything about publishing. I learned how to write a query letter. I learned about agents, um, as a teenager and kept sending out query letters. And once I think I remember like right before my 20th birthday, I was like, I need to get a deal before I hit 20. Like there was something <laughs> about being a teenager that was so important to me. But then once I, 
was 20 and I didn't have anything, I felt like I could finally relax. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, now I can live a life and maybe actually have some experiences that are interesting enough to write about. Um, and that's what I did. So I kind of slowed down. Um, I want to talk about your quote unquote woo woo spiritual thing, if I may, because yeah. I'm confident that this uh, came into being while you were also going through this. Would that be accurate? Not really. I mean, it, that's always been around. Um, that didn't really happen. Well, first of all, I want to say woo woo is your word and uh, I'm not going to fight yeah, with you word. about it. But and, and I understand because um, there are people that don't take certain aspects of non Jewish non Christian spirituality, they don't take it seriously, mm -hmm. or they see certain things in mysticism, um, or non Western views as woo woo. Mm -hmm. um, but I will tell you, you're going to, in talking to me, um, I have a lot of respect for certain uh, other spiritual practices. Uh, and I also have a lot of respect for things that other people don't see um, as being real. <laughs> mm -hmm. I have too many of my own experiences where um, I just know that certain things are real, regardless of what other people may say about them. Mm -hmm. And that um, I know when people have gifts, I know certain gifts that I have. And I know that when you nurture those gifts, they get stronger and they can be really helpful to lots of people, not just to oneself, can really make a contribution to people with those gifts. But when we deny them or we allow other people to deny them, those gifts dry up because yeah. um, I'll use it like a creativity analogy. When people start to say, well, I just, I get these cool ideas for stories, but then I don't sit and do them. Eventually the muse says, I guess you don't want me. I'll go That's somewhere correct. else. Yes. So just as an example of a gift that I have, I'm very intuitive and I have the ability to read people through objects that they have. Um, and some people are going to go, what the hell is this podcast? <laughs> it's, is that really legal with Eric Rubin? And I'm just telling you, this is a thing I discovered about myself through some work I did. So if someone keeps a watch or a ring or keeps something that's in constant contact with their body, I can hold it and I can answer questions for them. And I get really clear images in response to those questions. What those people do with it is up to them. And I've had to learn to stop a reading when people say no to what I'm finding. Like, yeah. so when someone said to me, I want to know where to live and I held their keys, I named a place and they're like, I love that neighborhood, but I already live there. And then I name another one. I love that neighborhood, but I already live there. Yeah. I then handed them back their keys because they're just saying no to me. Yeah. When, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know what to do with that. So just as an example. So with you, do you feel comfortable talking about the spiritual aspect of your life? I so do, yes. can you, uh, look, I, I know you a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, um, when, you know what, why don't you just tell me in your okay. own words how you, so, what you do? Um, at the moment, what I do for other people, at least I do read tarot for them, but, um, my whole life, um, I have been able, 
I've been very intuitive and I've just known things. Um, occasionally, for example, right before Hurricane Katrina hit, I was 14 and I had, I had this dream where I was swimming underwater and I could see the bodies and I could see the houses and I could see street names and, and all that stuff. So, mm -hmm. and then it happened and I was like, okay. Um, in fourth grade, I was doing the pendulum. The, I was reading people with pendulums. I, I thought it was a game I made up. I sincerely had no idea. I never saw it before. Uh, so just to be clear, because a lot of people won't know what you mean, you literally have some type of weighted object that you have with a string, like yes. a simple pendulum that we learn about in high school physics. Exactly. But you use it as a way to divine information from people. Yes. Um, so with pendulums is a yes or no question. So uh, my friends would be like, are we having pizza today? Are we having, you know, just we're fourth grade. Like what deep questions could we possibly have? But it was a game we played and I would mm. be the one. And it was my idea. I would use my necklace and I would just do that. Um, so that um, I can do a little bit of mediumship, but I've actually um, closed myself off to that because I am a big scary cat. Um, but when and I was- You said mediumship, just because I know you're going a little fast. And that's fine. I'll explain mm -hmm. it. Are you talking about communicating with people who aren't here anymore? Yes, people who have passed. Okay. So when I was younger, um, I could actually, um, they would come to me sometimes and I could see them. Um, and at one point, I think I, I just said, I no longer want this. I want to close it up. Mm -hmm. And I rather, it's kind of like having a conversation. Well, I did have a, a conversation with this higher self and spirit guide. And I was like, I would like to kindly exchange this for this other thing. <laughs> and they said, okay, or essentially, so I no longer see them because I'm a scary cat. I don't want to have nightmares. I do not enjoy them. Um, I, I think that's completely reasonable. Mm -hmm. You know, just like that gift I was sharing with you, you know, it's not like I feel obligated to run up to people and read them, nor if somebody listens to this, Am I obligated if they call and go, look, I want you to read me, come over and I'll you know, hold my ring or my watch or whatever. It's like, yeah. that's not. Yeah, you need to set boundaries. Um, great. You know, and great for everything. Great yeah. for your spiritual practice. Great for your artistic practice. Great for your personal life. Boundaries. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, so, um, actually, I do want to mention something interesting, though, because you mentioned the muse just leaving you. Yeah. So something that would happen to me when I was a teenager was that I would have an idea and I would write it out and then I would rewrite it, rewrite it, rewrite it, never do anything with it. Just keep rewriting because it wasn't perfect. And then I would go to a bookstore and find the book that I was writing. Hmm. It, it happened several times to the point where like, I had, I had a long-term boyfriend and that I would bore with details of just like the novel I was writing. And then he would find it. And he said, this is the book you're talking about? Is the one you're writing? Oh, I guess I'm not writing it anymore, huh? Wow. Um, I just waited too long. I, was, I wasn't confident enough um, in the work and just putting it out there that someone else just took it and did it. Right. Well, you know, even psychologists, I think it was Carl Jung said there's this sort of collective unconscious that we yes. can all tap into. I don't think that's any different from what you're talking about from a mystical point of view that uh, all these creative gifts are available to everybody who chooses to open themselves up to them. Uh, now you talked about writing a novel, but I, what I know of you, you're not really a novelist at this point. Not right? at this point, no. You're more of a poetess, if that's or a poet. I like God, that. sorry about that poetess. 
I kind of like nice. it. It kind of sounds like you Empress, did? but poetry. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> okay, yeah. Good. good then. All right. I'm always a little nervous being the old white guy saying the totally inappropriate thing to someone younger or, you know, differently gendered or whatever. Um, and I think you know this. I've really made a point to try to have as many people of color, women, queer people on the show just because there's not a lot of different voices. Uh, so thank you for ticking at least a couple of my boxes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, um, but so your poetry, well, why don't you talk about how your poetry has evolved from when you were younger to the point now where you're an adult and you write differently? So when I was younger, um, it was very much, you know, I think a lot of poets start off with writing poetry as if it's their diary. Um, definitely had to grow out of that. <laughs> when you say that, what do you, do you mean like, this is my personal experience and now I'm going to write a poem about it? Yes, but I feel like in the beginning, it's just so personal and so raw that you can't even leave room for metaphors that could lead to different meanings. Because at the end of the day, when the, the poetry is yours, but the reader will make it into their own thing. We'll see it from their perspective. Um, and, and every art form is that way. As we get older, we realize that that yeah. painting meant something to you, but it means something completely different to this pair of eyes watching it. <laughs> yeah, but I think in the very beginning, it's like, no, 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 but I meant this thing. I meant this thing because this is what happened to me. Um, so I think I really had to let go of that um, and just, no, just, just write an experience and know that it could be something completely different. Mm -hmm. um, so the very first one that got published, I think, had to do with someone I was dating, of course. So like, I never moved away from like writing personal experiences, but um, it did become about that. Then the second one was about um, being bisexual. And this was for uh, Reading Queer. They were doing a, an anthology. Um, and it just had, it was like a beautiful collection of different voices, different experiences. And the editor told me, you and this, like two other people are like the only bisexual people we could find. And <laughs> <laughs> I like, well, thank you. <laughs> um, and I, I thought about that for a really long time because I have, I am bisexual. I figured it out when I was 14, but I grew up in a very conservative space and I could never say it. But because I can come off as hetero, I never really, I can't say I quote unquote struggled with it because I was always kind of like able to just, I don't know, hide undercovers. I don't know, be in the closet mm -hmm. for very long. Um, so I think the Can I back up a second? Cause I, <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about, since you said the word bisexual, I'm, I find this very interesting because growing up myself, and I'm thinking of a time literally of certain things that happened in my life before you were born. So just, Imagine a world without porn available to you on the internet. <laughs> we had to buy magazines that were porn. And um, let's just say this. I uh, have discovered over time that what I thought was bisexual might be something called pansexual. And just for the re listeners who are like either telling me I'm getting it wrong or don't know what I'm talking about. I feel like bisexual deals with you are attracted to both of the standard genders. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And pansexual is more like you're just attracted to everybody regardless of gender. So if there's a trans person or there's an asexual person, or I don't know, there's constantly changes uh, happening from my point of view as a much older guy. I'm like, what are we doing now? How many colors are there in the flag? Um, I, I get confused. It's not, I'm not saying anybody's wrong. I'm just saying I have a very different frame of reference. So, I, you know, my own personal experience is I'm attracted to everybody. And I think that there's a lot of people who are that way, but they don't not just, they just don't come out as bisexual because bisexuals aren't trusted in the LGBTQ community. Because yeah. people, I've had experience of people telling me that they, you know, I've had, I've had gay guys say, oh, certain people, you're gay, you just don't, you know, want to commit, or, mm -hmm. or this is an experiment for you, or whatever, and it's not a, um, some people just don't get how other people could just be attracted to people and then they're okay with the physicality that shows up. Yeah. Does this all make sense? Am I? It does. Cause okay. that has been, um, and is this your experience? Yeah, it has been my experience, especially when I started dating, dating women in my early twenties. Like I, I got into an argument with someone I was dating and she was a lesbian and then she's, we were in the car. And then she says, well, there's only one gay person in the car right now. I was like, okay. <laughs> so that's, that was definitely designed to hurt you. Yeah, that statement. it was. And that's happened a lot. And so you get, you know, I get this, the cis hetero guys who are like, oh, you like girls, huh? I was like, okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> God, and I, then the and then lesbians who are like, oh sure, you like girls today. I was like, oh. I so, feel like I constantly have to apologize <laughs> for men. It's not my fault. I am a man, but I don't know what these other guys are up to. It's I just I correct people when I can, or correct's a correct's a bad word. I try to show people that things aren't always exactly as they think. Yeah, maybe that's part of this. So anyway, so you, you're so you're going through this life experience while you're writing your poetry, which is deeply personal. Yeah. So you're not, you know, because then there's this whole sapphic poetry thing. I mean, mm -hmm. Sappho being obviously the, uh, you know, the the template of a lesbian, uh, yeah. a very famous <laughs> poet from ancient Greek times, mm -hmm. uh, and so everybody takes her name and describes lesbians with it. But there's also very much this um, uh, this sort of idea of what feminist slash lesbian poetry should be, or you know, it's it all goes to people's need to put other people in boxes. It does. I want to understand you. So, are you like this thing or this thing? Mm -hmm. Are you like this thing or that thing? And once I figure out which Punnett square to go with genetics. Or which bunch of categories are going to put you in, even if it's music. Oh, you're this band? Well, would you call yourself alternative or emo? It's like, I don't know. We're just this music. It's hard for people to just accept. You know, I once was talking to a very close friend, and I said, I asked them about me to categorize me in a certain way. And they go, oh, I know what you are. You're Eric. 
And that was so freeing. It yeah. was so like, I don't have to worry. I don't need a label other than my name. Have you, do you feel that way? Or do you feel like you need a label on yourself? Oh, not at all. So my day job is um, marketing, social media. So branding is a big part of it. And in the beginning, oh, I'm saying beginning, beginning of my career, at least, there was this concept that you have to stick to one brand, right? So um, Jem, the poet, Jem, the tarot reader, had to be two separate Instagram accounts, for example. Two right. separate, you know, just, but I like writing and um, I like tarot and I like talking about sex. Why can't this all just be in the same account for Instagram, which of course, is kind of a metaphor for a personality. Why can't I be all these things? Why do I need to be one thing? Um, so I completely reject that. Reject that we have to be in a box. Um, and I, I know I confuse a lot of people who know me in, in uh, who know me personally, and then find my Instagram and they're like, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I met you through your Instagram. I could be wrong. It's Maybe funny, it you did? You you met me through my through my Instagram, but I knew about you through Twitter. Um, I have been following for years because I was following a lot of literary agents. Oh, uh, that's terrible! I'm so yeah. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> so um, yeah, so I've talked about this on the show before that I was for a time a literary agent for quite a few years and had a variety of clients, even some New York Times best-selling author clients. Uh, and as a result, there's this. There's a whole literary Twitter where when people find out you're an agent, they follow you. And then yes. I did not have this experience with you, but people will reach out to you. They'll DM you, even if you really don't want that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They'll laugh at everything you say. And you're like, it's like being at a party with someone where you know somebody wants something from you and it just feels awkward. Mm -hmm. uh, and then what happened was when I stopped being an agent for a variety of personal reasons, I lost about a thousand followers, but what I thought was really lovely was I didn't lose that many. Like I still have a significant amount and I still talk about literary things because I'm an attorney who still represents some writers and other creative people. And I discovered that people just follow me. So that's great. Mm -hmm. But I had not, and I apologize. It's a, you know, I just <laughs> have not known that you'd followed me on Twitter. Uh, that's good. Well, I actually experienced something similar because I used to edit. I was like a guest editor for a couple of competitions for, for writers. Right. And I experienced something similar. People would, you know, kind of kiss my ass and say, not so nice way sure. on, on Twitter. And I had a lot, a pretty big following just because they thought I was an editor for all of these competitions. And I only did them a handful of times. I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, so my hat, hats off to um, editors and agents because I don't know how y'all read through all that. But <laughs> <laughs> but um, once I stopped doing that, my my following number uh, just dropped. And mm. then um, once I started writing the sex column for a literary magazine, then I kind of ended up in a different pocket of liter lit Twitter, I guess literary Twitter. Um, that almost it, sounded dirty when you said it. <laughs> it <did. laughs> lit Twitter. I, you know what you are. You're a lit Twitter. <laughs> oh, that can be. I, when, I'll make yeah, that into something. When I'm, yeah, when I'm lucky, I am. Anyway. <laughs> but so I ended up in a different pocket of Twitter that I actually enjoyed more. 
because um, the really cool thing about writers who are constantly getting published in magazine is that they're really supportive of each other. Um, and it's not about this big, one big dream project of getting the novel published, but it's about the next poem, the next story, the next article. Um, and it's just so much, I don't want to say realistic, but it's just like, you, you see things happening for them. You see them growing right in front of you. You know, um, my, experience, my experience has been with literary circles that the people who are successful actually enjoy being part of a community. I think you could probably spread that out to any aspect of life. Um, but especially, uh, I used to represent a lot of romance authors and I made my entree into the literary world via a romance author who was a friend who I helped, we helped each other and um, I helped create their career. And then I made inroads through that. And I attended a lot of Romantic Times uh, events. The Romantic Times magazine had these big events every year and uh, also Romance Writers of America. I'm not gonna get lost in that because those organizations have a lot to talk about and I'm not gonna I talk know. about any of it. But <laughs> in its heyday, uh, every year I'd go and I'd meet tons of editors, tons of writers, tons of readers and people who were nice to each other really thrived. The people who were kind of like into a one night stand experience, uh, it's interesting we're using a sexual metaphor, but uh, who were into that sort of like hit it and quit it mentality of, I'm, or I'm gonna get what I can off of this person, suck them dry like a psychic vampire and move <laughs> on. You'd be amazed, or maybe you wouldn't, how quickly everybody hears about that person and how quickly everyone protects each other from that person. Um, I don't know about other genres. I've only represented mostly a romance and some mystery, a little bit of literary, uh, but it wouldn't surprise me that what you're talking about is also one of those kind of communities where people take care of each other and help each other thrive. And I would recommend to anyone who wants to become a successful writer of any kind, to seek out organizations and to develop friendships and support and look where you have something to give, not just where you have something to get, but like there's people need you. You may not think it, but it is incredibly satisfying. Even if you don't sell 3000, you know, titles, it's satisfying to be part of a community and make a difference. So it is. is that, was that your, so sorry, I of course interrupted <laughs> you. Um, so you, beyond just editing for those you started writing for those magazines yes so mainly um i had a sex column for a magazine that is no longer around because we later found out um the owner was did some stuff that is not very good and yeah, found out and yikes. and the community protected itself as you said yeah sorry i just knocked something over in my quote-unquote studio, which is my second bedroom of my apartment. My apologies while I struggle to get my microphone under control. <sighs> okay, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> we'll see if I have to edit this or we just roll with it. Um, sex columnist, how does that happen? So um, I kind of just pitched the column myself. 
um, I did have some experience uh, in college because I wrote a relationship, sex and relationship column for her campus USF magazine. Um, so that was obviously a very small scale. Um, and in the marketing social media world, I had worked on some campaigns for um, safe sex. And so I was always somewhere in the sex realm when it came to writing and campaign and marketing. Um, so Did you the mag people saying like, well, you don't have a degree in sex or, or therapy or any of that, nobody cared about that stuff? No, because I never came from that angle. So my, my goal has never really been to be a sex educator. I don't write how to's, I don't write uh, manuals or anything like that or, or steps. My goal has always been communications and that's what I have my degree in public relations and all that stuff. And I have been, cause I, we haven't really talk, talked about it today but I am really into volunteering with different organizations. And the majority of my experience has been with mental health organizations. So I have seen where there's this void of um, people not talking about sex due to the shame. And then there being a lot of trauma associated to it, a lot of PT, you know, PTSD, um, just, and just being unable to talk about it. So my goal was at first to address it from an artistic point of view. So how do we see sex in books? How do we see sex in movies? How do we see sex addressed in the news and the shame attached to it? eventually moving towards, okay, now you send me your stories. Um, and for the most part, they sent me poetry and like fiction, um, not really their personal stories, but you can see a lot through what they're writing there. And that's where I addressed it from. So I always made it clear, I'm not a sex educator, but I'm here to facilitate the communication of sex. Got it. It should be accessible to everybody. You don't, you shouldn't need a PhD to know about a thing that you like to do almost every night, hopefully, if like you have a really good relationship or occasionally, you know. Or even a relationship with yourself. Exactly. So you shouldn't need a PhD in order to feel good about yourself and do this thing that will make you feel good about yourself. Well, you know what's interesting is that everybody uh, gets this shame thing. Our culture has this very strange relationship with sex. Because on one hand, we're told it's dirty, wrong, whatever, fill in the blank. And on the other hand, we use it to sell just about every product. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as I alluded to before about porn, there is, I forget, there's some kind of internet term where if you can think about a strange kind of porn, it's already been invented. Yep. So to use one that's innocuous that won't freak people out, if you like seeing people sit on balloons and burst them, and that gives you a sexual thrill, that's a thing. I forget For the sure. name of it. Um, and, but there, like, it can, there also, if you just like people spilling things on themselves, even with all their clothes on, I mean, it can go all the way from that to things far more, uh, I, I hate to use the word tawdry because that's not my word things that are just involve a lot of nudity, multiple people, a lot of sweat, whatever, and everything in between. And I think that I'll just, I'll speak for myself without going into too much detail. I thought there was something wrong with me at one point when I was purchasing certain kind of magazines that weren't just Playboy or Penthouse, which were the acceptable. It's like, okay, if you have to be 
so uh, so uh, awful as to buy a pornographic magazine, our society has told you these are the acceptable ones. You can buy these. Women, you don't get them until at one point, I think Playgirl came out and they're like, okay, this is acceptable. But I then thought of this and economics saved my psyche because when I purchased some things and I enjoyed them, I had a realization. I can't be the only person that likes these because that's a terrible economic model. Yes. They have to hire these people, a photographer and all this stuff to put this all together. And just thinking of economies of scale for the amount they were charging for the magazine or the book or whatever the thing was, um, they have to sell a lot of these to make a profit. I mean, I'm, I'm not an economics genius, but this much I knew. And for some reason, I didn't have anyone to talk to about whether this was okay or not okay. I certainly wasn't going to talk to fraternity brothers about it. I certainly wasn't going to talk to the girl I was dating because that was too personal. And I didn't have a therapist because I wasn't quote unquote crazy. So like, what do you do? And I thank God I reasoned my way through it. And then I didn't think too much about it again. And then luckily I found in my path, I found resources and people, um, to the point now where I live in a society where people of all stripes talk about sex in all different ways, if they choose to, you know, you drive across this country. I don't know if you've done this. Um, you can drive through the Bible belt. There's plenty of porn shops on the major highways. They're not there by accident and they're not there just because Satan put them there, you know? So our country and more globally, our whole world culture has a lot going on with sex. I like to think the Europeans are a lot cooler with it, but not all of them. Uh, Yeah, I always thought of it as like the world's strangest conspiracy because most of us enjoy sex. Most of us enjoy things that we don't like to talk about out loud, or at least a lot of people do. Um, But it's this taboo thing and we're told we're bad for it for thinking about it, for wanting to do this, for Googling the thing. Um, I think it's like finances. You know, like we should all know about it. Yeah. I'm not going to show everybody my checking account. Mm-hmm. But I think people know we all, most of us have checking accounts. Yeah. And we use them the way we use them. And if you really like somebody, they get to see your checking accounts. <laughs> That's a lot of trust. Yeah, I have commitment issues there. <laughs> Well, I don't blame you. And, and you know, because I've talked about this uh, on this show, I've given away a few houses. Um, so uh, third time's a charm. I'm not giving away a house this time because it's not my house, which is great. Uh, fine. Yeah, all right. Anyway, um, giving away houses is dramatic and traumatic, but it's still worth it. If you're in a relationship you don't want to be in, um, you can pay alimony and then just reframe it for yourself as a freedom tax. So I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. I mean, I got, I got away with no alimony, so I'm good. <laughs> but... Well, congratulations. Um, so let's get back to you. They've gotten completely um, far afield. 
So you're, you started writing the sex column in college and then in this magazine that is now defunct. But yeah. that's not the end of your writing in that regard, is it? I mean, do you still, you, well, first of all, what a great transition. We'll talk about the podcast. So yeah. you have a new podcast. What's it called for the people I out there? I do. It's called Concerning Sex. And the concerning is a play on um, things that concern us, that worry us, um, and also just about sex. So, your father and I find your behavior concerning. Exactly. Very proper. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, so. that's me. I'm really proper. <laughs> and I like the way I said my, your father and I, like, apparently you have two dads. So I mean, I would be a cool child if I had two dads. <laughs> oh, cool adult, I guess. You know what, though? As a child, you'd rebel against that. Like, it's just like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Nobody's parents are cool. I'd be a nun. <laughs> 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 all right sorry we, so um we took a weird turn yeah so and, concerning sex yes yeah, so it's me and a friend um and it's really funny because the idea was for it to be a sex podcast but we ended up talking a lot about relationships um but it's it's sex relationship dating but through the lens of mental health because i experienced a lot of anxiety um i didn't my whole life it's actually something i'm still navigating as far as like where this came from and all that and he also experiences anxiety. Um, so, so the partner in this is a guy. It's a guy. Um, he's a friend who does not live in Florida. Um, so we kind of play on that a lot. He's in Louisiana. He's had three hurricanes. And <laughs> so, wow. I mean, maybe that's a, a blessing for the podcast. But um, so he doesn't really have a lot of experience. So it is a lot of me kind of. I don't want to say teaching him, but he'll ha he'll ask questions and, but I like that because the idea is for these topics to be accessible to everybody. Again, it should be accessible to people who don't haven't written a sex column for years for people who aren't researching this all the time. I like the dynamic that you have a, a woman who knows more than the guy. I like that and too. <laughs> there's a certain teaching quality. I don't know how he identifies. You identified him as a man, but I don't know about he, also he his sexuality. Male. He identifies male and um, has not opened up on anything else regardless. So I don't do that. Yeah. But um, yeah, so there's that dynamic and then the dynamic of me teaching and again, just things in layman's terms. And my goal is also to just bring up a lot of questions uh, because I feel that sometimes especially on Twitter, especially with these topics, it's kind of, sometimes you are shamed for asking certain questions or not Googling certain questions. And I understand you should do your own research on certain topics and not, and not expect someone to teach you something. Well, sometimes I, it's a time thing. Like I, I've been guilty of this as an agent or a lawyer when people are like, they'll say, so how can I become an author? It's like, <laughs> Hi, you know, this is Twitter. Like, how can I answer that without taking my whole day? Yeah. Because it's like, and, and I can never answer it anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, my quickest thing that I've always done is like, you should join your local writers group and attend some meetings and see where that takes you. <laughs> I know. And it's like, and, th and then what happens is people either chuckle and go, yeah, you know, Eric, it's not your job to teach somebody. Or then you get another group of people who can't wait to hate me anyway, who go, man the patriarchy they won't let us in and he's such a dick and i mean you know you can just 
Twitter yeah. is like going to the Coliseum and watching the gladiators and lions just freaking. There's always it. someone to piss off. There's always someone who would be angry, and at one point you just got to keep going. So do you? So you talk with your partner in this podcast, but do you take questions? Do you? Do people call That's you? Do they, so so, the, how, um, so we have pre-recorded about ten episodes now. Awesome. And the idea is that once they're out, so it is out. So the first three are out and we, it is um, on a delay. It, they're being published on a delay, but we are encouraging people to email us. So concerning sex at gmail.com um, to email us their stories, any questions. Um, I'm going to do that again slower because it's important. So that's <laughs> concerning sex at, at gmail.com. I have to tell you something, Jim. I, have taken a course and I'll be taking it again called speak out that a couple of my friends teach. One is a transformational teacher and coach and another teaches speech and acting at Juilliard and had, I had her on my podcast. Her name is Susan Finch and it's worth you, you are worth being heard. I really want people to hear you and hear what you have to offer because it's valuable. In case you didn't get this, I find I don't just have everybody on my podcast. So, and I'm not like I'm the great gatekeeper or anything, <laughs> but um, I really don't have just anybody on. I, I like to have this be valuable. So concerning sex at gmail.com. If you write to Jem and, uh, and I don't know who he is, but Ian, we'll just, Ian okay. Uh, and you, they can ask you anything from equipment, positions, why do I cry after? Why do yeah. I cry before? Um, yeah. Is this, I, I can't stay hard. I can't get wet. I, like, these are things that uh, having undergone, gone through seminars myself, hearing people talk about issues, being a 59-year-old guy, look, I, I take hormonal supplements. I don't take any, um, I, sounds like bragging, I don't need any pills. <laughs> but I had very little testosterone in my body at one point, and it was affecting me not just sexually, but other ways. It's really important for people to go to a doctor rather than just say, oh, I, you know, I can't stay hard, I'll just get this pill. That could, there could be other problems, right? You could have physical yeah. issues. You could have mental or emotional issues. Yeah, it could be some, something as simple as stress, um, a change in your life. Somebody died. Um, or hormonal problems. Yeah, or yeah, or legitimate hormonal problems. So we always encourage people to um, seek help, don't assume. Um, and don't, I think for me, again, it's a shame thing. Like, don't be ashamed to ask. Don't be scared to ask. We all have these questions. And that's why I'm okay Like with the list of questions you just gave. I, I don't care what kind of question it is. Um, I mean, don't ask me about my personal life. I would prefer not to. I would probably talk, <laughs> that's not, talk about it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not the purpose, at least as we understand it, of the podcast. Yeah. I, I mean, regardless, I have a big mouth. If you have a question, it'll probably be answered at some point because I can't help myself sometimes. But... Uh, yeah, the purpose is to just make it in a place to ask questions and not feel like you're being judged for it. Um, and we approach every, every topic with like, um, yes, like we're researching this topic, 
we have anxiety, we have questions about that other people might say, well, that's not like, that's paranoia. That's not, you shouldn't worry about that. <laughs> well, no, I'm worried. I have anxiety. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And um, because we are really well, well aware of this though, um, I have made a point to make a list of um, therapists that I am going to have every couple of episodes on and we'll kind of review some of the topics from previous episodes just to make sure we get their point of view, the point of view of a professional. And it's not just two people with anxiety um, giving you anxiety with like their own. Sure. And plus, you know, some people are in relationships where there's a strange power dynamic and that can definitely affect you sexually where you thought you guys were on equal footing. And then uh, every time something happens, you feel uncomfortable with yourself and uh, it can just be that can be an indicator that that relationship should not be a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, I'm speaking from my own experience. I know when I've dated different people, I'm the same me, but when I'm around certain people, suddenly I'm stupid and I'm not a stupid person or I'm funnier and that's great. Like I am funny, but when I can be funny with somebody, that's a good indicator. It's like you can, your well-being is a barometer of the relationship, I think. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I agree. And I also like that metaphor when people people use to talk about relationships, like they have good chemistry because it is like chemistry. Um, Mm -hmm. Two different people with their own experiences, their own points of views and will create a whole different dynamic and they will talk, you know, they will talk differently. They will, how you were saying, you might be funnier, you might not sound as smart um for whatever it be it's it's because of the chemistry i know i know someone who was clumsy all the time when they dated somebody it just didn't work they literally fell down a lot which is very weird and then of course when you say chemistry quite literally like sometimes you like somebody but you don't like the way they smell and it's just a bad you know like then there's some people like they may not be your um idea of I like I tend to like short stocky guys but there's this tall skinny guy like and I can't like when I'm near him I just love the way he smells I want to sorry folks I want to bury my face in his arm (laughs) or I just want to keep his shirt in my apartment or what you know like and even that conversation some people can't have it took Brokeback Mountain for me to realize that was a thing do you remember? Did you see Brokeback Mountain? I did not. But, <coughs> okay. I have an ex- but I have an experience similar to that. There was someone who had a crush on me for about two years, and I didn't want to date them because I thought they smelled. Uh, <laughs> That's but, a problem. But one day, I don't know what happened. Something changed. I gave them a chance, and suddenly that was gone. And we actually that is dated. Interesting. We dated for several months after that. Oh, we didn't last. But it was interesting how that changed. Um. And it was, again, pure chemistry thing. Yeah, you know, we're animals. Yeah. People forget. I, People forget. We I, are. They really do, you know, because we put all these fancy degrees after our name. We have all these curricula vitae. And uh, we talk about all sorts of stuff. And we wear interesting clothes. Okay. And uh, I was with someone this morning. And we went by the dog park. There's a billion dog parks in Brooklyn. And this one is one of one of the largest I've ever seen, and it's built on the side of a hill. And all the dogs 
the, the owners have to go through this multiple gate system so dogs don't escape. And as they're going in, the dogs get more and more excited. They're about to be let loose into the group of dogs. And the dogs are every kind of dog, every shape, size, whatever. And when the dogs meet each other, of course, they go and they smit each other's butts. It's just, <laughs> and then they jump on each other to figure out who's going to dominate and not, whatever. And then they steal the ball from each other and they pee. And then the other one goes, well, I'm going to pee where this one pee. And there's a whole thing that happens that's very much, we expect the behavior of dogs. And my friend said to me, um, wouldn't it be funny if people greeted each other the same way dogs do? <laughs> I was like, there are some people I know I wouldn't want to sniff. There are other people, maybe I would want to sniff them. I'm not sure I want to sniff their butt necessarily, but. I imagine it's... that might be involved in pet play. Ah, <laughs> I would, I would guess. And just so if people don't know what Jim's talking about, there is a, I don't know if I'd call it a kink. Maybe it is a kink. There's a, a sub genre of sex play. Some people like to do things where one person's a horse and they literally have a bridle and saddle and whatever, and the other person uses them as they would use a horse or engages in activity with them as they would a horse. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who are somebody's cat and they come over to wherever they go and they have a water dish and yeah. it's a whole thing. Consenting adults, people. It's all about consenting adults. Yes. So Friends you have to be age of majority mm -hmm. and that everyone's in agreement. Yeah. Uh, there's All a lot of terms. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, make, you know, go online and take a look at the laws. I'm not going to, I don't give legal advice on this show, but I do know there are lawyers in the kink communities who write a lot about this stuff because there are people who've run organizations, I'll call them for lack of a better term, who can get themselves in legal trouble if they don't follow rules. Somebody gets their feelings hurt more than actually injured. Um, someone gets their feelings hurt or something happens and suddenly there's a lawsuit. And, uh, you know, people sometimes assume everybody's in agreement. Uh, it's always, this is a sideline. I don't know if it's appropriate at all times when we're talking about interpersonal relations, but you know, getting something in writing like a waiver and signing it uh, when you go to certain places, uh, you know, certain organizations should have waiver forms that people sign. Heck, I represent photographers. I represent uh, fitness coaches who have had me design waivers for them because they don't want to get ultimately sued if something goes wrong. So it explains to people what they're responsible for, for themselves. And I think when it comes to sexual activity, you know, it's just another realm of being an adult. What do you think? Well, something that I advocate for is even if you are a quote unquote vanilla couple, you should at least explore the consent guidelines that the BDSM community um, uses. Because I just want to be clear because you, I understand the language you're speaking, mm -hmm. but I got to assume not everybody does. So when you say a vanilla couple, that means like people who are into what 
what they consider normal sexual activity like what the mainstream we, would consider normal right yeah. so nobody's even i don't know if that includes spanking or uh leather goods or mm -hmm. i mean everybody's idea of normal i think is different i once heard someone saying there is no such thing as a normal person normal is a setting on a washing machine but and i've met i've interacted with a lot of different people i don't know but but I just wanted to be clear because people may not understand. You don't necessarily mean very white people when you say that. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't even think that could be a thing. <laughs> I don't know either, but I just, I, I'm not making the assumption. So when you're like, okay, so there are people who are like, we only have sex facing each other on mm -hmm. every other day. And, and maybe doggy every now and then. <laughs> you're like, gonna, I'm not having like, this conversation with you. But I hear you. Uh, so, so, but you're saying even those people who are not, who are not going to sex shops and buying a variety of toys and magazines or whatever, they should still talk to each other about what consent means. So when yeah. some, one of the partners like, you know what, I'm tired, I don't want to, mm -hmm. that is a communication that needs to be heard. And more than that, I even like the um, idea discussing what, is considered soft and hard limits. So I will absolutely never do A. Um, but B, maybe depending on the day uh, and how I'm feeling, just let me know if you're into it that day. That's like, you know. If I've had uh, a vodka or I've smoked a little weed. But even then, I, even I then said that then. jokingly. Yeah. But then we get into a question of impaired, uh, whether you could consent to things if you're impaired. I don't want to get lost in that rabbit hole. Yeah. Clearly, listener, this is more complicated than, you know, we were led to believe when we were watching Mad Men or in the 60s <laughs> when we thought like everything was okay. And then we learned yeah. maybe we should have been nicer. I'm going to have to wrap this up soon because okay. we both have our time limits, our hard limits. Um, have you found yourself running into legal issues at all with any of the stuff you're doing no but one of the questions no legal issues yet but because <laughs> i haven't tried something and um something i've been exploring is just how difficult it is to advertise when your content is about sex mm -hmm. because um google for example if i were selling sex toys which i'm not um i could not advertise on I believe on Facebook or Instagram, Google Ads, yes. Um, but Funny, then, if you were a Nazi, you could. <laughs> oh yeah. That's my um, little dig at Facebook, but uh, <laughs> anyway, we we're, we don't mind white racists, but we're really upset when someone someone shows us a plastic penis. But okay. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Um, Sorry, I hijacked that. <laughs> you're good, but also if I to move my podcast to YouTube, which we have talked about, um, or at least included that as a platform, I could never monetize it um, because I'm talking about sex. And I could say, oh, actually, it's about dating and relationships. Sex, what sex? But it's in the title. Um, <laughs> so I can't get away from it anymore. Yeah. But I could never make money out of it. So I would kind of be forced to use the, the Patreon route and if I wanted to make money out of this. Um, and now Instagram... Uh, as this past week has tightened up again their um, guidelines. Yes, for I saw that. Sexual. 
Um, it's very and- interesting, by the way, how many people follow me on Instagram and I look who's this and it's like a woman in a bikini. Yeah. And I'm like, what is this? And she's got like no followers and she's following 300 people. I'm like, okay, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to have to block you because mm-hmm. the hair on the back of my neck says that this is not about you enjoying my content on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, well, there's that and there's people who, you know, do that to scam, but also a lot of sex workers are struggling to find avenues to promote their OnlyFans, for example, which is the most like popular thing right now, um, or their cam because of these regulations are everywhere. Um, and it's, it's a struggle. So I haven't run into any legal issues, but that has been something in the back of my head as far as like, will I be able to advertise this? And coming as someone who is in marketing and social media, this is actually a new problem I've had. I never really run into this issue before. Mm. So now I am forced to be more creative with my advertising. Well, I look forward to seeing how you negotiate these issues. Yes. As uh, who knows what social media will be developed over the next several years too. I mean, the landscape's constantly changing. The laws are changing. There's a whole new world coming and uh, we just one day at a time, we'll see what happens. I really appreciate you coming on and talking to me about what you do and who you are, Jim. Thank you really uh, for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. Well, there you have it. Jem Blackthorn, fantastic woman with a lot of talent and uh, just yet another brilliant person with talent that we've had on. I know these are upsetting times. Um, Heck, I'm upset about them myself. So I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this podcast and to see that there are good people doing really cool and interesting things like Jem and lots of my other guests. And we're going to have some very exciting guests coming up. I want you to stay well. Wear a mask. Eat Abe's muffins. They're so good and they're allergen free. They also make the chocolate brownies that I'm obsessed about. Do not obey in advance. Okay? Keep faithful to democracy. This stuff matters. Be well. Take care of each other.